Welcome to the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. Vintage Church is a multi-church, multi-city movement of truth, love, and community. For information, visit vintagechurchmovement.com. Here is this week's message. Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel, and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Good morning, Vintage Church. It is such a pleasure to be with you this morning. Happy Father's Day to all of the fathers watching right now. We love you. We celebrate you. As a new father myself of a 14-month-old right now, fatherhood is tiring and exhausting. Thank you, though, for your service. And um, you know what? Do you know why scuba divers fall off the boat backwards instead of forwards when they're going into the ocean? Because if they fall forwards, they would fall flat on their face in the boat, okay? That's a free dad joke for you this morning, okay? Actually, this one will cost, though. This one, what do you call a cow with a twitch? Beef jerky. (laughs) All right, so anyway, those are free. That second one actually is not. But today, we're continuing in our crossover series of Exodus. And I want to start right now with talking about one of my favorite people in the world, What better to start off Father's Day than talking about my wife, Erica Carr. Erica and I met in 2012, our freshman year, right before our freshman year at Northwestern, where we were both student athletes. And we were, it was a group of cross country runners and a group of football guys. And we were kind of milling around on the beach and we met, we, we mingled and then we departed. And I'll never forget, there was love at first sight. 
but only for one of us. I'm not going to say who it was. You can guess or we can talk later, but I'll spare you the details. Long story short, after the summer or the summer of my fifth year on the football team, we got married. And for those of us who are married, you know of the delights of engagement and of marriage. One of the biggest delights is getting to know your fiance or spouse, who they really are, who, who is this person? And so we're talking about more than surface level stuff, obviously, surface level stuff like height, weight, 40 odd dash time, those, those stuff are like on the surface, deeper things, right? Um, stuff that others can't necessarily know. It, it requires time spent in intimate relationship, intimate time together talking. And if you ask the average person about Erica, um, pretty universally one of the first things that comes up is that she is incredibly happy, or she tends to be just happy, joyful all the time. They might describe her as a generally positive person who brings a light to the room, and maybe a closer friend would even say of Erica, Erica, one of her strengths, as far as fruits of the spirit goes, is joy. And I would absolutely agree. It's a beautiful thing. It's one of the first things I noticed. But as her husband, um, I know a much deeper texture to her that would not just notice her joy and happiness, but that would, might be able to explain her joy and happiness, why she is that way. From time and close conversation with her, I know stories from her past that might explain why she walks in the joy that she walks in so much. Um, I know that there are personality traits that she has that um, might push her away against discomfort and against joylessness, and maybe I know how those tra traits might have grown or been fostered in her childhood. I know these stories from her life that explain why she is this way today. And above all this, I know that signature joyful giggle that Erica Carr has and all of its variations. There's lots of variations to her giggle. There's the pity giggle. There's the tired giggle. There's even the angry giggle. Yes, that exists and I get it a lot, but I can pick out in a room of maybe 10,000, I know the giggles of my wife, Erica Carr. And actually, when I, first, uh, when I first learned how to draw it out of her, when I was her friend in college, I could not stop flirting with her. Like, it was so fun because she's very joyful. She's very giggly. She would laugh at my jokes. And, like, I was, like, addicted to this stuff. Um, it was, like, nicotine or maybe something harder than that. I don't know. But um, regardless, the point is that um, there's a specialness to knowing someone as they really are, and that requires more than just noticing things, but maybe hearing them explain why they are that way, how they became that way. Them kind of looking below the, the waterline of an iceberg, right, and looking below and seeing and being ex explaining all of the things that have to do with who they are. Well, this morning, as we continue in Exodus chapter 3, we're in the middle of God's conversation with Moses. God is calling Moses to do gr something great, and God is going to reveal to Moses, and I believe to us this morning, who he really is, and the implications of that are absolutely incredible. They're absolutely incredible for our lives. The better we get to know God, the better we can serve him, the more we can love him, and the better our lives will be. Indeed, the Westminster Confession begins, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, so if it's your desire to glorify God, if it's your desire to enjoy God, then it's going to require you to know him, know what glorifies him and why that glorifies him, know uh, what about him is enjoyable. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. And so again, as we continue in our series through Exodus, we land in the middle of Moses' encounter with God. He's at the burning bush burning bush that is not being consumed. And for those who might be just joining us, the name of the book 
um, of Exodus is derived from the Greek term exodos, which literally means the road out. And this is a book in the book of Exodus. It is the magnificent story of God leading his people, the nation of Israel, out of the land of Egypt where they've been living under the oppressive and harsh rule of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now, God has been seeing this go on, and we talked about this last week. He's not content to see his people uh, vanquish under this oppression. He's a God of love, and so he's angered by what Pharaoh is doing. And so he's going to do something about it. But whereas God could completely free his people on his own, right? God could just, he is all-powerful. We know he could just, boom, snap his fingers. Everyone is free and say Pharaoh dies or whatever. God doesn't always operate unilaterally in human history, okay? That is to say God doesn't operate just on his own to do something all the time in human history. Instead, he is a God who chooses to partner with us, humans, to accomplish his divine will. He doesn't have to partner with us. He doesn't need to partner with us. But in his great love and wisdom, he decides to empower us to work with him to bring his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now you look back and you learn of the great saints of the past, and you see this over and over again. God could have miraculously worked uh, back in the first century in Jesus' time. Jesus could have said, all right, all demons are going to be exercised from everyone. But no, Luke 10, Matthew 10, what was Jesus doing? He was sending his disciples out, breathed on them the Holy Spirit to cast out demons, right? Fast forward to the 16th century. <clears throat> we learn about William Tyndale. God could have dropped a common language Bible from the sky for all of the people to read at that time. But no, instead, God empowered William Tyndale with his spirit to translate the Bible into common English so that the common people could read it. Um, fast forward to the Civil War era. Many of us know about Harriet Tubman. God could have brought out a steamroller, a divine steamroller, um, and created the Underground Railroad. But no, instead, God wanted to partner with somebody who had a heart for him. That's Harriet Tubman, who began the Underground Railroad. You get the point. We see God accomplishing his purposes frequently through partnering with his people. Even today, understand, God wants to partner with us on different separate callings in our life to accomplish his divine will, okay? Now, last week, Pastor Reaver taught from Exodus 3, again, 1 through 12, and at this encounter, Moses and God at the burning bush, God calls Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. God has decided to partner with Moses to deliver his people but Moses has some initial hesitations, okay? He's a little bit nervous at first. And we read in verse 11 last week, Moses questions himself, asking God, wait, who am I to go to this Pharaoh? And then God promises his presence in verse 12. But Moses, he's probably still in shock. He still has more to say. So where we pick up today, the dialogue between God and Moses continues, where we see Moses bring up another hesitation and God's response is incredible, and one of the things we're going to get from this, I guess the main point, is uh, we're going to see who God really is, right? God is continu continually unfolding who he is in Scripture, and so we're going to learn that. If you're taking notes, you can, uh, the title of this sermon, you can, you can write down, Real Great, Real Good, Real God. Now, I'll read verses 13 through 15 again, and we'll dive in. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to him, to you. Excuse me. Okay. 
First point, real great. God is transcendent. We understand <clears throat> names matter, okay? Everyone here knows this. Maybe you had a nickname growing up as a child. Maybe somebody around there nicknamed you. As for me, my friend David, who was a, uh, on my baseball team, he was a classmate as well. He was a good buddy of mine. David nicknamed me Afro Thunder, okay? This was in sixth grade, middle school. And it stuck with me in Benicia, California, through middle school, throughout high school. Yes, this is me, seventh grade, okay? I was rocking the fro come sixth grade. That's when I got the name. I did do cornrows, and then I didn't do them again. They didn't look great on me. Uh, and if you think I should go back to this, let me know. Just DM me, and I'll, you know, talk to my wife and see if she okays it. But um, you get the point. So, so in modern days, nicknames, though, often attach someone to uh, physical characteristics, right? So f obviously for me, I had an afro. I was called Afro Thunder. Um, maybe you at your school, you knew like a freckled-faced Freddy or a big booty Judy, whatever it might have been. Um, it's a little bit different than Old Testament times. In the Old Testament uh, and in the ancient Near Eastern world, the connection of a name was between the person and their character. And so Moses asking for God's name is basically Moses asking him, God, who, who are you? Or who are you to us that I would go if they ask me, well, who is this God that you spoke to? You claim you spoke to this God. Well, who is he? And, and they're expecting something from, um, from Moses that reveals something about God's character. But I think anyone who's a little bit insightful, who's maybe read through Genesis or even the beginning of Exodus up to this point, why do we need another name, right? Uh, he, he's already revealed himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty, to Abraham in Genesis. He's, he's revealed himself as the God of the forefathers. He's revealed himself as El Roi to Hagar, right? Um, the God who sees me. He's revealed himself as uh, El Bethel to Jacob, the God who met me at Bethel. Genesis 26, 28, 35. Okay, we, we've seen these, seen these names of God. So why do we need another name, Moses, right? If anything, El Shaddai, God Almighty, is, is all that they would need, right? Why would God even oblige to give another name? Uh, well, the Bible scholars give different valid reasons here, but one particularly important reason for us today is that God is about to do something unprecedented up to that point in history amongst his people. He's about to bring the world power that is Egypt to their knees through a wanted shepherd dude, right? Moses had committed murder. We learned about that earlier in Exodus, who's living out in Midian. He's not even in Egypt anymore. And so in other words, God is, God is saying to Moses, he's almost saying, Moses, I'm about to do far more than you could ever imagine, but it's because I am so much more than anything that you know. I am who I am. Okay, what does that mean? I am who I am. When God says, I am who I am, he is denoting or conveying his divine transcendence. That word transcendence, it's a theological word, but um, God's transcendence is seen in that he is exalted, or this is a, this is a quote, sorry, from John M. Frame, uh, from his essay, Divine Transcendence and Imminence. It means he says, God's transcendence is seen in that he is exalted in his royal dignity and exercises both control and authority in his creation. He is exalted above, beyond us. In this sense, God is not my buddy old pal. Hey, you know, you're my buddy, right? And Jesus does call himself a friend of sinners, okay? But what he's getting at is I, I am so different than you. I am holy. I am set apart. I am transcendent. God is not like us in one sense when he describes himself as I am. 
I am. It's literally the verb to be. So if, like, we didn't translate, he's almost saying to be that to be. But we know that in the context, he's saying, I am who I am, or I am that I am. God is communicating to Moses his utter transcendence. God simply, powerfully, majestically is. He is the invisible, uncaused, infinite creator who sits outside of time and space, holding all power and authority in his hands, almost like this. And when we continue to read our Bible, we learn of his transcendence in story after story after story, right? This is the God who, in Genesis 1, creates the entire universe. Physicists say that the observable universe is 93 billion light years wide. That's the observable universe. God spoke that into existence with words. Words from his mouth, 93 billion light years wide. Exodus 15, it says that he split the sea from the Israelites by the blast of his nostrils. Okay? So God goes, and sees part way. I go, me and my wife part way, because I'm disgusting, okay? Psalm 46, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. God utters his voice, the earth melts. Revelation 12, we read that God wasn't even fighting with Satan. When Satan and all of the angels rebelled against God in heaven, back in the day, way back in the day, it says that Michael and Michael's angels were fighting against Satan, okay? It wasn't even God. God wasn't involved personally in that fight. Why? God is in a completely different weight class than Satan and all of the demonic realm, okay? So he sends Michael and Michael's angels to fight. This God is great. I am who I am. God is utterly transcendent. Brothers and sisters, when he says this, he is pointing Moses's and by extension our, attendant, our attention to this transcendence and the reality of that transcendence should be life-altering for us. How? Well, for us today, we can rest knowing that because our God is transcendent, when he says he's going to do or deal with something, we can confidently trust him and obey any calling, any command in faith, okay? Back in the day, I had appendicitis. This would have been my freshman year of high school, 2008, 2009, beginning of 2008. And I remember it was homecoming weekend. We had a big football game, and I was crushed because Saturday morning I woke up, doubled over in pain. It was killing me. And... I'll never forget, mom, you know, calls the nurse, okay, got to go to the hospital. We get to the hospital, and I'm talking to the surgeon, and, you know, the surgeon had done some imaging, felt around, talked with me, okay, you've got appendicitis, we're going to have to put you under, you know, we're going to need to take this appendix out, and uh, I'll never forget the conversation with the surgeon beforehand, though it's it's actually kind of impressive, because I had to have, like, four doses of Vicodin to, like, take the edge of the pain off, so I don't know why this sermon... It's featuring lots of drugs. I didn't mean for that in the beginning, sorry. Uh, but he was so reassuring. This surgeon was calm. He was cool. He was collected. He knew what he had to do. He was explaining everything to me. And eventually, you just sort of start to trust him more, and you become composed. He, he's done this before. Um, he, he's you know confident in his expertise and the power of the skills that he has. And so before I went under, I could sense that the, the problem, after talking with him, it wasn't as crazy as... I thought. It wasn't as worrying as I think it needed to be. I could sense that, um, you know, look, at, at some point you just say, okay, you know much better than me. Um, I trust you. And in one way, this surgeon was above my problem. What gave me comfort was he's almost above it. He's been in it before. He, he knows what he's doing. I can trust him with my life. 
Brothers and sisters, do you trust God with your life? When his word diagnoses problems in your life and when he calls you into deeper obedience, do you trust him and do you obey? Or do you think that you know better than him? Or do you play the role of spiritual advisor where you sort of like, well, no, this is why you're wrong and this is what needs to actually happen or this is... Or maybe you're like Moses and you start to look inward at your own inadequacy and then you think that that disqualifies God from ever calling you to something that he wants you to do. What I'm talking about here, um, obviously in the context of Exodus, it's, it's something, you know, paradigm shifting for a whole nation. And we could be talking about God calling you to say run for office, but this also could be a calling to run from a relationship. Whatever it might be, do you trust him and do you trust him so much that you will obey? If God is truly transcendent beyond time and space, existing in infinite wisdom and infinite knowledge, when he calls, we must trust and obey. Now the good news is God is not calling us from a detached place of transcendence where um, he's sort of this detached God up there, right? Um, He's also calling us as someone who walked in a calling himself, in the person of Jesus Christ. Which brings me to my next point, number two. Real good. God is imminent. I was going to have this say real close, because that points to imminence, but I think this is just going to be better. Okay, looking again at our text, God not only reveals himself as transcendent, but he says, as when he says, I am, that I am, or I am who I am, but in verse 14b, what does he say? He says, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. What does I am mean? He has identified himself, that is God, with a personal name now, okay? And that name in Hebrew is pronounced Yahweh. Again, that's a personal, the personal name of God, almost the way that we would say a name is, uh, oh, that's Dustin, or, you know, Snoop Dogg, you know, a certain name, to name two people that are exactly the same person. Um, This is groundbreaking because after revealing himself in all his transcendent divinity, I am that I am, God also reveals himself as a personal being to Moses, stooping low enough to be referred to by a personal name, okay? And this is revealing his imminence. It's almost as though God had said, okay, you know what? You can call me Doug, right? God didn't say that. He says Yahweh, but our modern ears, we don't use that term a lot. God says, hey, just call me by my first name, okay? Yahweh. And historically, in Judaism, uh, Yahweh, they, they hold that name so sacredly and so um, with such reverence that they don't even say Yahweh. They say Hashem, which means the name, right? Because they don't even want to say God's personal name. As Christians, we believe we can say Yahweh. It's revealed in Scripture, um, and we believe that's what God wants to be referred to, um, obviously in reverence and with respect. But for those who might be unfamiliar with this term of imminence, this theological term, um, divine imminence, again returning to John M. Frame in Divine Transcendence and Imminence, he says, to say that God is imminent is to say that he is present in time and space, that he is near us. And so in contrast to his transcendence being high and beyond us, divine imminence hold that he is also personally present and active everywhere in our world all the time. The beauty of this is truly incredible because if he were purely transcendent and not imminent, um, he'd be like a powerful but detached father, sort of unconcerned with human affairs. And honestly, some of us watching today 
might have had a father who was like that, who maybe he provided and stuff, but like he was kind of detached from human affairs and that is not who God is, okay? Because he's giving a personal name as a way to almost bridge, to bring Moses in. Hey, I'm also a close God. I'm with you, right? He has just promised his presence in verse 12. He's saying, and my name, by the way, my first name, this is what it is. I can be close to you. As beautiful as his transcendence is, which we just talked about, it's in God's very nature to be imminent. And for, I think for some of us, it can be hard to understand that he, he's actually very close. From the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, what do we read? We read that he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. Psalm 54.4, uh, the psalmist says, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. The word for helper there, ezer, is the same word that God uses for Eve in Genesis 2. When Eve is described as Adam's helper, God now identifies as our helper, right? Or David's or the psalmist, God's people. God says, I'm your helper. But perhaps the most awesome example of his imminence is the reality of the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. God has never been content to exist purely as a transcendent God, as amazing as, as that is, and as much as we need that, um, he has actually instead also decided to come down in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. And though all power and authority dwelled with Christ in heaven, um, Jesus decided to empty himself of his rights, humble himself to the point of coming down to earth in bodily form, walk among us, suffer with us, die for us, and resurrect to grant us eternal life. This is the good news of the gospel. Now, if you do a survey of the world's religions, um, they'll all pretty much affirm a kind of transcendent reality of their leader. Maybe their leader was transcendent in and of him or herself, or they have some kind of transcendent reality to them, um, whether it might be Buddhists who pursue Buddha's enlightenment or Muslims um, who follow Muhammad's commands from their god Allah. Um, mankind has always fashioned their gods in a realm that seems untouchable and transcendently beyond our human experience. But the Bible says of Christ in Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let that simmer for a moment. The God of the universe, the 93 billion light year wide universe, decided to come down in human form, the person of Christ, and to suffer a death for you and for me in the most humiliating way possible back then, even death on a cross. And the great reality, though, that separates Christ from all other religious leaders is that it was through his humble death and resurrection that God the Father exalts him, right? The next three verses, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you realize Christ is the divine imminence and transcendence all wrapped into one person? He comes down in human form from his great transcendence to live among us, like I said, suffer for us, die and resurrect so that we would have life. And then he ascends into heaven where we will one day go as well with him, right? Showing and proving that he has all authority anyway. He willingly gave his life up on the cross to die for our sins 
and then resurrects to show I am the transcendent God too. I'm not just, Jesus' bones aren't in the ground anymore, and that's because he is a transcendent God. But the reason that his bones went into a tomb in the first place is because in his imminence, he wanted to be close to us, and he wanted to be with us. This is beautiful. If you haven't placed your faith in his uh, in this beautifully transcendent and imminent Savior, Jesus, I invite you right now to repent of your sins and to turn from whatever way you're going and to turn to Christ Jesus, to embrace him in faith, to trust in him and say, Jesus, I'm following you. If you've already placed your trust in Jesus, trust him and obey. I think it's a pretty simple message, but if we're honest, it's easier said than done. We don't always feel motivated to obey him, and I feel that personally. I'm sure you guys feel that as well. Um, but God wants to make sure our motivation for obedience is proper. For the last point today, I want to talk about the real God being the promise keeper, okay? Looking at verses 16 through 17, this is the last point. Go and gather, this is God speaking, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what, you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's interesting. Verse 17, God promises something. Now, last week, we were taught verse 12, about God promising his presence to Moses. That was his response to Moses saying, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? In our passage today, Moses again questions himself, saying, what am I going to say? What am I going to say that your name is, right? And God responds with his name, but his name followed by a promise. Similar to what Weaver talked about last week, God follows it up with a promise. He's reinforcing Moses' obedience with a promise, about the future. I want to make a main point about this, and it's, it's, it's very simple, but it's profound. The extent of your faith grasping his promises about the future will be the extent and strength of your obedience to him in life. This is extremely important. Our obedience to God was, was meant to be motivated by something specifically, and that specific thing is faith in his, future, in his promises about the future. If you're like me, you, you might have been raised with um, hearing, maybe in the church or in your home or elsewhere, or maybe you just sort of came up with this on your own. You know what? God has done so much for you. You know, the best thing you could do is, is to just follow through and obey his commands. Because look at the cross. Look at everything Jesus did. Aren't you grateful for that? In your gratefulness, obey him. Many times we can... Um, act that way in personal relationships, whether it's with a spouse or a parent or a friend. Wow, because you did so much of this, then I, I've got to obey you. And the problem with this is that it becomes transactional. It, 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 it almost submits itself to the debtor's ethic, right? Where, okay, you did this for me, I'm going to do this for you because I became indebted to you because of this, because of what you did for me. The biggest problem with this is it's just not in the Bible, okay? Obedience is, you never do you read about obedience being motivated by gratefulness in the past. Now, don't get me wrong. Thankfulness is a key Christian virtue. 
We are to look back into the past and look at the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We're to look in the past and see all of the ways that God has come through for us, and that is to encourage us. That is to build our faith, to, to trust in his character, to see all of the things he's done, and, and, and look to the future and say, you know what, I've seen it before, I can see it again. But I'll read a passage from John Piper's book, Future Grace, where he says, in Hebrews 11, we find the saints of the Old Testament commended again and again because their obedience was motivated by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Noah prepared an ark. By faith, Moses left Egypt. Through faith, others enforced justice. But we find no expression in the Bible like, by gratitude, they obeyed, or by thankfulness, they enforced justice. Furthermore, we find Christian obedience called the work of faith, never the work of gratitude. We find expressions like live by faith and walk by faith, but never any expression like live by gratitude or walk by gratitude. We find the expression faith working through love, but not gratitude working through love. We read that the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, but not from sincere gratitude. We read that faith apart from works is dead, but not that gratitude apart from works is dead. And when Jesus deals with the disciples' hesitancy to seek the kingdom first, because they were worried about food and clothing, he did not say, oh, you of little gratitude. He said, oh, you of little faith. Faith in future grace, not gratitude, is the source of radical, risk-taking, kingdom-seeking obedience. Christian, let your obedience to God and his commands be fueled by the promises that we have from God in Christ. In your battle against lust, greed, materialism, selfishness, bitterness, complacency, idolatry, fill in all the, all the rest of the sins that we find, find a promise that God gives us to latch onto to fuel your obedience. The same way that God was giving Moses promises about the future, Moses had to grasp that by faith, which it says in Hebrews 11, and then walk in obedience, believing that that would happen because God said that it would, right? Practically speaking, one of my favorite verses is John 6, 35, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Use that whenever there's, maybe you want to look at pornography, or maybe you want to gamble uh, foolishly. Whatever it might be, Jesus is saying, I am everything. Full contentment is in me, right? You will not hunger or thirst if you come to me. Or maybe when you feel the pull to live in anxiety, worried if God will provide. Memorize and believe Matthew 6, 25 to 26. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than them? What is Jesus saying there? You're of much more value than the birds. I'm going to provide for you. And that passage ends with, therefore, do not be anxious, right? Or maybe um, you're considering, considering your life approaching its twilight and you fear, you fear death, right? What does Paul say in Philippians? To live is Christ, to die is gain. We count our death as a gain for us in the grand scheme of things. Isaiah 41.10 is something that really gets me right now. If you're dealing with uh, a transition in life that you're growing fearful about, maybe it's a new job, maybe it's losing a job, maybe it's getting out of a relationship, maybe it's moving, whatever it might be, what does he say in Isaiah 41.10? Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. 
I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. These promises are placed in Scripture to motivate and strengthen our obedience through faith. We're not called into this debtor's ethic kind of thing, which is really not faith-filled obedience. The Bible says um, whatever is not from faith is sin, right? We're not trying to pay God back for what he did. We could never do that, and he doesn't even want us to. What he delights in is when we take him at his word and obey in faith for all that he promises to be for us in Christ Jesus. He loves when we rely and lean heavily on him. So I encourage you, whatever your battle might be, cling to a promise. Find promises in the Bible to fuel your faith, to fuel your obedience to him, and to delight him. We talked about glorifying God and enjoying him forever. A huge part of that is taking him at his word, believing his promises, applying them to your life, and walking by faith and obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you so much um, for just the learning that we get from Moses' life. Seeing uh, him question and him worry and him falter at the calling. And, And God, when we continue to read, we see your great power. We see your great love. We see, Lord, over and over again that you are faithful and trustworthy. God, I pray over Vintage Church, over every soul within the sound of my voice, Lord, that we would trust in Christ, that we would be faithful to Christ, that we would strive to finish the race that you have put us on, Lord God. Whatever you have called us to, whether it's great or small in the eyes of the world, Lord God, it's given from you. And so I pray that we would finish well, that we would run well, Lord God, that we would trust in you and that we would look upon your your both transcendence and imminence seen in the person of Christ and that we would Um, love him, that we would turn to him repeatedly, um, Lord, and that ultimately we would spread that word to a needy world. So God, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.